Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. On today's episode, we're going to learn about the epic film Alexander. To help me separate fact from fiction, I'm joined today by Ryan Stitt. Ryan is the host of the History of Ancient Greece podcast, which, as the name implies, goes into an amazing amount of detail about the wars, people, culture, society, and more of ancient Greece. You can find his show over at thehistoryofancientgreece.com. Before we chat with Ryan, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. Now, if you're new to the show, here's how this little game works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true. And that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Hephaestion died of an illness in Babylon. Number two, some of Alexander's soldiers mutinied against him. Number three, Alexander did not kill Darius at the Battle of Gaugamela. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Ryan to chat about the historical accuracy of the 2004 film, Alexander. The movie starts with Alexander's death. Now, we'll get to that a little bit later, but after that, the movie sets up some context around Alexander's life. So I thought that would be a great place to start our discussion. According to the movie, in the year 285 BC, or 40 years after Alexander's death, Anthony Hopkins' character, Ptolemy, is dictating about Alexander's life. He says that Persia ruled almost all the known world in the East and the West, The once great city-states had fallen from pride over a hundred years, or for a hundred years, the Persian kings bribed the Greeks with gold to have them fight as mercenaries, and then it was Philip, the one-eyed, that's what they call him, he changed all that. He built a professional army that brought the devious Greeks to their knees. This is all the way Ptolemy narrates it. And then he turned to Persia. Philip turned to Persia, that is. Uh, Philip was murdered, but something that Persia paid for his death. So at age 20, Alexander was made king of Macedonia and vowed revenge for his father's death. He began by liberating all these cities in Western Asia, all the way down to Egypt, where Alexander was declared pharaoh of Egypt and worshipped as a god. Finally, King Darius was provoked to face Alexander at Gaugamela. So that's kind of how the movie sets everything up. How accurate is that description of the events that led up to the Battle of Gaugamela between Alexander and Darius? Relatively accurate, but missing quite a bit of detail. (laughs) So let's start from the beginning with Ptolemy. Well, he's not really the beginning, but where he talked out. So Ptolemy, he was in Alexandria. We have Ptolemaic Egypt is the kingdom. We'll talk about that later. He was one of his generals. He also wrote a lost history of Alexander. So I, I liked how they set that up and, and gave like that aspect to it. It was kind of like his history, he's talking about it, he's giving back to it, or he's going into it, uh, that kind of like inception type of thing. So he says that Persia ruled almost all the known world in the East, which known world to the Greeks, yeah. 
when Alexander gets to India, that's like parts of the the Hindu Kush. That's basically where Herodotus and a lot of the geographers were kind of. That's kind of as far as they knew. Um, that that's like the edge of the Eastern world. Obviously, Persia didn't go didn't have control of all of the East. There was Indian uh, territories out there, and Alexander would have to fight some of them, like Porus and Taxilis and all that. And obviously there were Chinese empires further East, but their contact with those people aren't as well attested that early, uh, if much at all. We get a lot of that information when you get explorers later in the Hellenistic period, but that's a digression. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, in the West, he says the once great city-states had fallen from pride. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's how Macedon kind of was able to, they benefited greatly from it. So you had the massive, Pers- after the Persian Wars between, you know, some of the Greeks and the Persian Empire, they came into the Persian Empire, and then you have the, the Greeks immediately starting fighting with themselves, led by the two dominant factions of the time, Sparta and Athens. And then you have for the next, I don't know, like 100 years or so, not even 100 years, next 80 years or so, you get a lot of internecine warfare between them. And they basically weaken themselves down. And then, you know, Macedon comes down for the first time, really, in their history. I mean, they've had some influence, but not quite as much. Philip makes some changes in the army, and he expands Macedon into this power that it was never quite before. It used to just be a buffer on the periphery. It was never the power that it would become under Philip and then under Alexander in its first several centuries of existence. Where he mentions that the Persian kings bribed the Greeks with gold to have them fight as mercenaries. I wouldn't quite say it was bribing them. It was, you know, gold having fight as mercenaries. I mean, it's a historical fact in a way that, like, Sparta would not have beaten the Athenians if it wasn't for the fact that they got Persian money to build a fleet to fight the Athenians. So the Persians were always in, or not always, but the Persians were heavily embedded in the Greek foreign policy. Persia was always someone in an Eastern empire in the East that was rich, and it was Athens and Sparta. Athens so much kind of were were always looking to them during the war, just so the Spartans didn't get them. Uh, And it was always kind of like this, who's going to get them on their side first? But neither side was willing to give up what was necessary for it, which would have been the, the autonomy of the Greeks, because Persia coveted those, <laughs> those the West, Western modern Turkey or Asia Minor, whatever you want to call it, Anatolia, m- many names for it. They, all those Greeks out there, they, they, uh, the city-states, they coveted that land back, which is you know, part of the reason that the Athenians had their empire to protect them. So you had any deal that was going to get Persia on your side was going to be giving away the freedom of those Greeks, and they weren't quite ready to make that sacrifice yet until later the spartans were again we're not going to digress that far it's a different movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can listen to my podcast uh yeah their their gold is definitely they had a lot i mean xenophon wrote a famous the ten thousand greek mercenary soldiers who fought with cyrus to take over the throne of persia the two brothers were fighting for the throne after the war they fought in the mercenaries Ever since, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar and like 300 years earlier, there really wasn't, I can't think of a single major battle in the Near East that didn't have Greek mercenary soldiers. Their hoplites were, were, were paid to be mercenaries. They were some of the best warriors and kings and pharaohs and, you know, different types of kings went after them, especially Egyptian pharaohs with Amasis and later on like that. But like they were mercenaries in most, if not all armies in the, in the time. So Philip 
after he turns south towards the Greeks, you know, the Battle of Chaeronea in 338 BC, he defeats the, the Greek coalition and then basically takes over dominion over Greece. He has control over Macedon, Greece, that whole peninsula all the way down to basically, he doesn't get Sparta, but basically pushes down into there. They establish the League of Corinth. And it's at Corinth where he becomes like he establishes himself as the hegemon. It's the Greek word for leader, hegemonic, hegemony is where we get those words. And as its leader, he begins to prepare for this massive invasion of Persia in 338, 337, somewhere around there. But in revenge, he's using it as like a sacred explanation or reasoning for their 100 years beforehand, or 150 years almost desecrating and burning of Athenian temples during the Persian Wars. So they're still trying to get revenge for that. So they want to sack Persia and defeat Persia in revenge for sacking their temples. And that, that's the stated reason, at least. And they also want to liberate uh, some other Greek cities that now are controlled by the Persians again. So he sent an advanced force into Asia Minor under Parmenion and Attalus, which are two of the generals, and they'll also be in Alexander's army later. And they started liberating some of the Greek cities in the Troad, so near Troy is, so northwest modern Turkey. But before Philip could like follow through with a full army to come back with them as he was making plans, he was assassinated in 336 BC. And the campaign then was suspended for the next two years while Alexander had to consolidate his control, not only over the Macedonian throne, but there was some uprisings in Greece after the, his, uh, Philip's death, and he had to put those down too, quite viciously actually. And then we get to the Battle of Gagamela is actually the third of the three major battles. I mean, I get it. You can't really have a movie. If you're going to do a movie on all of Alexander's campaigns, it's, it's more like a TV mini, miniseries. You're going to have to cut some things out. Uh, <laughs> there's just so much going on. So, he, I, so it's, it's a, the director's decision to start with uh, Gagamela. But like Granicus was the first major one, which was in the Troad. That was in May of 334. He defeated uh, the forces of Persian satraps. So these were like the governors of Darius um, the third. It's not him it, exactly. So he defeats those. He spends like the next year, year and a half or so consolidating Asia Minor, gaining control of Asia Minor, building up his forces. So Turkey area. And then so you finally get to the Battle of Isis um, in November of 333 BC. So that's like southeast Turkey right before you're going into Syria. And that's actually against Darius. So he's leading this army. It's a victory for Alexander. And it's, it's, it's important because it's the first defeat that the Persians ever had in their history when the king was present at the Battle of Isis. And if you, if you see that famous mosaic that's at Pompeii, it's in the Naples Museum. Uh, without, you always see it with an image of Alexander staring at Darius on the horse. That's from the Battle of Isis. And then it's after this battle that he captures Darius, his wife, his two daughters, and his mother. So we'll get into that later. He doesn't actually like walk into them in Babylon. It's af after this battle because they were in his baggage train and Darius fled and left behind his family in a slightly cowardly fashion. And then he would spend the next year or so writing letters trying to get Alexander to give him back. And he's just like, uh, you can come and get your family back and then give me the throne. And, and like, <laughs> so after that battle, then Alexander turns south. He goes through the Levant, through Syria, Lebanon, or modern day Lebanon area. He has a famous siege of Tyre. We won't get into that. And then he, once he consolidates that area, he turns into Egypt gets control of Egypt. There's a revolt back in Greece he has to go take care of, or he has some people take care of. And then after he basically consolidates his 
control over the eastern Mediterranean seaboard is then when we get to the, okay, now I, I feel safe and secure in my supply lines. Uh, I have logistics. I'm prepared. Now I can head east into the Persian heartland. So there's quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that answers my question because the first one we see in the movie is Gagamela. And that was going to be one of my follow-ups to that previous question of that's the first one that we see. It's just kind of like, oh, this is where his conquest must have started, which kind of begs the question, why does it start so close to Babylon? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. Gagamela, it's actually, um, it's near um, modern day Erbil. So like northeastern Iraq, like Iraqi Kurdistan. So as you see, as he gets through, he crosses both the Euphrates and the Tigris until he eventually comes to them. So you you have Persia, um, for your listeners who might not be 100% on their geography, the heartland of ancient Persia, old Persia where Media is, and their per- Pers- the, the region of Persis is like modern day Iran, and then they spread out and gain control of all their territories. So it's like he, Alexander's near the east, or is on the, uh, is on the coast. Darius is back in uh, Susa in Iran, and they kind of just come together. Uh, he's Alexander heads east, Darius heads west, and they meet in Iraq or north eastern Iraq. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks Earnin. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. Talking about that battle, because that, that is the first one that we see in the movie, though, but we get a little bit of setup on the battle itself. Ptolemy, still giving us voiceover, says that there were 40,000 Greeks against hundreds of thousands of, he just calls them barbarian races unknown to us, gathered under Darius. And we get a little bit more information. I'm going to call it a Hollywood-style speech because it's the the leader of the military riding along. And this time, of course, it's Colin Farrell's version of Alexander riding in front of his men before battle. But in this speech, he talks about how the Persians don't fight for their homes. They're only fighting because Darius says that they must. And then a few moments later, Alexander talks about, uh, tells his men that the greatest honor is to die 
with your countrymen in battle for your home. That struck me like right away. I was like, wait a minute. They just said that this was near Babylon. Why? Like they're not fighting for their home if they're fighting near Babylon. Wouldn't that be totally inaccurate for him to imply that the Greeks were battling for their homes and say that the Persians are not battling for their homes? In a sense, it just dep- it depends on like the motivations that are being told. Uh, you know, you can come you can come up with anything and, and, and make it in your head so so you're motivated. Like Alexander could have been telling his men, or Macedonians could have been telling their men, "Oh, okay, uh, it was the Persians who assassinated uh, Philip, so we're fighting to revenge him. We're we're fighting to revenge the Athenians, the Greeks. So it is in a sense for the pride of our homeland, not necessarily." they're invading sort of thing it's all semantics i guess um these type of speeches are famous in a lot of the history i don't know if that specific speech is like built uh, is taken from the works or not but i know you have like thucydides and they have like these famous speeches that are not and herodotus it's not quite what was said because there's just no way to get it verbatim but you're just trying to put the mood in place of what may have been said or what sounds fanciful i guess so yeah it was to rile his men up alexander was very charismatic so it doesn't shock me if he did give grandiose speeches like that to his men he was very well liked by his men they respected him at least at first (laughs) now they still respected him later but we'll get into that too We'll get into that. Yeah. Well, how about the battle itself? Because the movie shows the battle. It's, you know, it's it's bloody. It's what you would expect for an epic film like this to depict a battle at that during that time. And according to the movie, again, Ptolemy's voiceover is is explaining this to us. He says that the Persian army was destroyed, and then at 25 years old, the result of this battle meant that Alexander was king of all. Was that true? In a sense, I mean, he, Darius was still wasn't dead at that point, but we'll back we'll back up for a minute. So the battle itself, they do a very good job of it, of showing it, uh, showing warfare in general. I, I pretty I particularly like like the costumes and the props and that sort of stuff. As we were saying, you had mentioned earlier about the forty thousand Greeks against hundreds of thousands of barbarians. Um, so. Some sources state that there were over a million strong, just like, you know, Herodotus uh, 150 years earlier stated there were over a, a million as well. Highly unlikely. It was probably around, uh, I think some of the best estimates I saw were like 50,000 infantry and 40,000 cavalry for the Persians, which is still like almost double what the Greeks had. Alexander had about 40,000 infantry, 7,000 cavalry. You can squabble over the numbers depending on what modern historian you're talking to, what they think their estimate is, what, whatever. doesn't matter. But still, he was heavily outnumbered. So during the battle, Alexander, the way he lined up his formation, he he worked his way through the Persians. And as he crashed through the center, uh, Darius fled. He began to personally chase after him. But his left had kind of gotten to a diagonal line and they were kind of getting outflanked. And as they were advanced, Parmenio, who was controlling the commanding the left, Alexander was on the right cavalry wings um couldn't keep up so a gap began to appear and so he had to he panicked and sent a messenger for alexander to come back and alexander was almost about to catch darius but alexander obviously didn't want to just like leave his army get crushed so he had to turn back around by the time he got back with his forces they were able to mop up the rest of the army and they put them all in retreat and began to chase after them and once they got to the lycus river which is to the east of Erbil, i believe maybe to the southeast, they rested and he was able to capture the camp, all of its contents and all the treasury, basically 
all the treasury. Uh, Arian, I believe it was, estimates oh, the Macedonians lost only about 100 men and the Persians lost 300,000. Whoa. Which is definitely an exaggeration. I was going to say, that's, how is that possible? Uh, <laughs> but it was a brilliant victory for Alexander. He uses the, the terrain to his advantage and he was heavily outnumbered. And Plutarch goes on and he, he quote, I don't know the exact quote, but he basically, as you were saying, after the battle ended, he, he said that the authority of the Persian Empire was essentially just transferred to Alexander. And it, would, it became a turning point in the campaign. Obviously, he was still alive and Alexander, he was alive, so he was still a threat. So Alexander would have to pursue after him. But for all intents and purposes, I mean, even though um, Darius would try and build up another army to a third army this time to fight him, fought him at Isis, uh, fought him at Gagamela. Um, he just, he couldn't get an army big enough or he just, he, the forces weren't flocking to his banner as he would have expected. And he had to retreat further and further east into the mountain, this region, and try to use the territory to his advantage. But we'll get to that, I guess. In the movie, one, of the, one thing I'm curious about, because they depict a pretty different strategy between the leaders. We see Alexander going into battle himself, whereas Darius stays back and commands his men from the back, which in the movie at least is how we end up with Darius able to flee. And then Alexander is on the forefront there chasing after him, similar to what you were talking about. We see something similar to that in the movie. Did Alexander actually go into battle? with his men, or was it typical for a leader to stay behind like Darius? So in Greek warfare, at least, the commanders were, well, before we get to Macedonia, the, the hoplite warfare, the commanders uh, traditionally fought in the front right, because the right was the position of honor, and the commanders t- a lot of the times fought in the front. And I don't know how much you know about hoplite warfare, but, you know, with the shields, with the infantrymen, they were held in the left um, because your right was covered by the guy beside you. So since the right wasn't covered, there's a high death rate for commanders. So they fought in the front right. So at least early on, there was a high death rate. Now, Alexander fought uh, in the Mounted Cavalry with his companions. He fought in the front with them. Philip fought, fought too. He's, he got injured several times. So did Alexander. He got injured quite a bit throughout the campaigns. Some serious injuries. Yeah, so he fought with his men. Darius, in both battles the, uh, at Isis and Gagamela, he fought. And he wasn't like, you know, sitting in a tent dictating strategy or whatever. He actually he fought. Like, I'm not 100% sure if he was on the front line. I know that um, he was the center of his formation and he was surrounded by infantry and cavalry. So he wasn't like out in the front, but he was he was surrounded by the immortals and the body, like the, the bodyguards. Spartan kings had that too. They had their their famous 300 which was the bodyguards of the king the hip ace the cavalry the bodyguards they would surround the spartan kings in battle so i mean he wasn't like front row dead center he had people surrounding him but he was in the battle he was in the fight yeah he was in the fight he was able to get his best men around him (laughs) yeah well i was just curious because yeah in the movie i the implication that i got was alexander's in the thick of it but then darius uh, he was in his chariot and I never really saw him actually fighting. I just saw him commanding his men, telling them what to do. And so it just seemed like very different styles of leadership. Mm-hmm. I think that was meant to contrast the two leaders throughout sources and modern scholarship and ancient, ancient historians always look at Darius as a coward because he fled. 
multiple times, left his family behind. He kept fleeing. I'm not going to make any judgment here, but that's that that was the predominant uh, belief in a lot of scholarship. So you kind of see that going throughout in the movie as well. Well, speaking of the movie, if we go back to that, after the Battle of Galgamela, we see kind of a flashback and it goes back to Alexander's childhood. And the question I have for you here, the movie seems to imply that Alexander was not Philip's son. There's a line of voiceover from Ptolemy when we first see him as a child with his mother, Angelina Jolie's version of Olympias. Ptolemy says something to the effect of how when people saw a young Alexander side by side with Philip, they wondered, is he actually your son? So was the movie right to imply that Alexander might not have actually been Philip's son? A couple things. That the implication I believe that's being made in that movie is hearkening back to several legends that surrounded Alexander's birth and childhood. Not necessarily that he wasn't Philip's son per se, that he was a son to another mortal, but that he was the son of a god. And you'll see Alexander, you'll see that get played up probably by Olympias later, no doubt by Alexander and his successors. But uh, according to Plutarch, one of our sources who wrote uh, a lot, Life of Alexander, on the eve of their consummation of their marriage to Philip Olympias, the mother, she had this dream that her womb was struck by a thunderbolt and caused the flame to spread far and wide um, before withering away. And, you know. Thunderbolt is the symbol of Zeus, and he was believed to be a son of Zeus. A theory, apparently, that would be later confirmed to him when he goes to Egypt to the uh, Siwa Oasis and visits the Oracle Amun, and, and so then he starts identifying himself as the son of Zeus Amun. Um, Amun is uh, an Egyptian god that's syncretized to Zeus Amun, uh, d- deity. Um, but anyway, so sometime after the wedding, Philip is also said to have a dream where his wife's womb is sealed with a lion's image and Plutarch offers a variety of interpretations of these dreams. Plutarch actually was a priest at Delphi. So he's big into these oracles and this type of stuff as G whiz information. And so he, one of his interpretations that Olympias was pregnant before her marriage. So that was indicated by the sealing on her womb. And then you start seeing these rumors promulgated that it was actually someone else that got her impregnated or other than other rumors that Alexander's father was actually Zeus, became a whole ancient commentators were all divided on whether um, this was true, not, not whether that was true, that Zeus was actually his father, but actually whether, like, how it came about. It was probably Olympias that started the story and pushed it further after Alexander was off as a child because he was not a legitimate heir in a sense he wasn't uh, olympias uh, wasn't a full-blood macedonian so alexander even though he was philip's son the macedonian elite always pushed for philip to take another wife and have a full macedonian child and we'll get to that and that happens later into the one of the other flashbacks with eurydice so alexander was you know half macedonian because his mother was from epirus which is kingdom modern day like albania or whatever on the western balkans that actually leads into my next question, because you did mention um, Eurydice, and there's something in there. You also mentioned earlier that Philip was assassinated, and there's two different storylines that I kind of see in the movie about surrounding Philip's assassination. One of them is right away when Ptolemy mentions it, he talks about how potentially the Persians might be behind it. I think I mentioned that earlier. But then... There's another flashback in the movie where 
we see Philip getting married to Eurydice and she gets pregnant. And so Alexander's mom starts to worry that perhaps Alexander is going to be killed on some dangerous mission to clear the way for this other child to take the throne. And so the movie heavily implies when we actually see Philip getting killed that Alexander's mom, we see, you know, Angelina Jolie's version of his mom looking on and she is not surprised in the least and doesn't seem to be upset at all that Philip has been killed. So we kind of get these two different storylines of maybe the Persians were behind it or maybe Alexander's mom was behind it, tried to secure his place on the throne. Do we know who was behind his death and were these potential implications that the movie has things that people thought might have actually happened? We don't know. Uh, a lot of speculation. There's like four different scenarios that people like to put forth. So to back up a little bit, there was another flashback in the movie where Alexander and Philip get into a fight, which actually happens. They get into a, when Philip was drunk and he actually like kicked or Olympias and Alexander go into exile for a short time. They eventually come back. But during that time, Olympias tries to get her brother, the king of Epirus, to war with Macedon and really strains their relationships. So then Alexander, the first of Epirus, so his, her brother, then would marry one of their daughters, and you know, incestuous. And it re-cemented their alliance. And it was when this wedding took place, where the assassination took place. So this was a wedding at Agai, which was one of their summer palaces, or yeah, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Summer retreat for the kings, or for the royals. And there was nobles from all over Macedon, and Philip was in the lead in this grand procession, and at the end of which was one of his personal bodyguards named Pausanias. There's quite a bit of Pausanias in Greek history, so this is this one. It was his personal bodyguard, and he stabbed him with a dagger in the chest, which you see in the, in the film. He then tried to jump on one of his horses, and he got caught, and Alexander's, they caught him and killed him. There's quite a few theories. So since Pausanias was killed before he was able to talk, we don't really know what his motivations were. Adiodorus, one of the sources, puts forth that Pausanias did it on his own initiative because he was a lover of Philip and Philip had gotten rid of him for another lover. The story was common in the ancient world. People talked about this. It was mentioned quite a few times. But the insult supposedly happened like eight years prior. So it's weird if he would have waited that long to exact his revenge. But, you know, could get angry and hold on to it for a while. I don't know. Secondly, there's um, some believe that Olympias persuaded Pausanias to kill Philip because she was threatened by his marriage to Eurydice and wanted him dead, which, you know, you can figure out why. But she didn't want to do she didn't want the deed done herself because then her brother would abandon her to uh, she she didn't want it known herself like that. She was behind it. So she hired somebody else. That's another theory. Some sources later say that she had Eurydice and their son roasted over a pit after Philip's death, too. So, you know, there's quite a bit of sources, as you can tell. She's a woman. She's a powerful woman. So there's a, a lot of what is said about her has to be taken with a huge grain of salt, like it is in the ancient world. Like with Cleopatra, basically any woman who has power gets slandered and like anything she does is not acceptable and it's like devious. And what if a man did it, it would just be, you know, standard operating procedure. But yeah, anyway, I digress again. <laughs> So the third would be that Alexander convinced Pausanias himself to kill Philip because he was annoyed at his father for taking credit for the victories that he had a significant role in and dismissing him. And, and he was uh, threatened that Philip would replace him as the heir with another person, like another child. 
And then finally, as we mentioned earlier, a fourth is that the Persians hired Pausanias to kill Philip. So you have Pausanias did it on his own. It was Olympias, it was Alexander, or it was the Persians. Because, you know, he was, as we mentioned earlier, he was about to leave for an invasion of Persia that was already underway. And they'd rather face an inexperienced king rather than the experienced one. I like to think if Philip would have done the same thing, I don't think they would have went as far. Like, I don't think they would have continued. That was Alexander's doing. But if Philip led the invasion, I think they would have went, sacked, uh, defeated the Persian Empire, and, you know, went back. <laughs> but the young whippersnapper went, had to outdo it and continue further on. And we can see later, he's, he was very ambitious, very um, grandiose in, pl- in his plans. So after Philip was killed in the movie, I believe it's almost instantly, like right away, everybody around is like, you know, long live the king to Alexander now because he's taken place. Does did it happen that quickly that now all of a sudden Alexander is the king, like almost instantly right after Philip is killed? Yeah, basically. I mean, he was the heir. People knew that. The Macedonian elite knew that. Nobody else really had a claim to the throne that could outshine him now after philip was assassinated now other greeks decided oh, okay so philip who beat us is no longer alive we're going to revolt and so you know he has to spend a couple years fighting those cities and getting things under control i say it's like almost essential like it's almost like oh they hailed him as a king but alexander also him and olympias according to the sources also killed anybody who could threaten them to like they had after he came to power, they had him, you know, as most kings do it when there's a di- uh, change, anybody that could threaten him was, you know, ended up roasted over a spit or yeah, they, they, uh, were, you know, shipped to Siberia. Not really in this case, but you know, they just disappear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, if we head back to the movie it, after this scene, it bounces back to 331 BC after Alexander's victory at Gaugamela and So this is when we see the Greeks arrive in Babylon. Alexander and his soldiers are marveling at the amazing architecture and, of course, the beautiful men and women in Darius's harem. And then once he gets there, Alexander does some things that his soldiers give him an interesting look when he does this. He announces that anyone in the harem who wishes to go home will be set free, which, of course, doesn't make some of those soldiers happy. Uh, the Persian princess, Satera, assumes that Alexander will kill her family and sell her into slavery, something like that. But then he tells her that her and her family are going to be treated as his family, and she'll live in the palace for as long as she wants. How did the movie do showing this when the Greeks arrived in Babylon was Alexander's kindness to the nation that he captured? A few things on this. So since it started with Gagamela a few things kind of got smushed. So like I mentioned earlier, Satara and her sisters and her mom were actually captured after ISIS. They weren't actually in Babylon and Alexander, by the time Gagamela happened, had already had them. But he did treat them very well. They all kept their social status. And when he got to Susa later on, he actually left them there while he continued east looking for Darius and the rest of them. And he left instructions with Statera to be taught Greek. I think the movie makes mention that she doesn't really know greek much yeah they had like an interpreter there mm-hmm. and so the speculation by historians is like okay alexander already knew that he was going to marry her whenever his campaigns were over and he was preparing her life 
like, you know, as his wife that he could communicate with. So teaching her Greek. And in fact, she would become Alexander's second wife, well, second slash third wife. Um, six years later in 324 BC, he, uh, he also married her older cousin, Perisatis, which is the daughter of Darius's predecessor. And, and this is a year before he uh, dies that this happens, these grand weddings, just kind of what this gets smushed into. And then you, you see like a massive, I, I forget where it is, depends on the version, but you see like these massive like wedding feasts with all these Persian noble women being married off to Alexander's companions and stuff, um, including the younger sister of Statera is also married to Hephaestion, and we'll talk about Hephaestion later, I'm sure. But yeah, um, so he marries both Perisatis and Statera, which, so, and basically he cemented his ties to both open branches of the Achaemenid royal empire. So like, there couldn't be someone else who could marry them and then have a, like a claim, you know, later. So he would marry them at what's called the Susa weddings, and he also would marry Roxana, which would be his first wife because he married her before he came back and married them he came across them first you know but he basically uh he loved roxana so like he fell for her these two were he treated them well but they were they were definitely um consolidation yeah they were politically politically motivated and consolidating marriages and in fact he'd only be married to them for a year and um, both of them would be be killed off by roxana a year later after he died So you mentioned you mentioned second slash third wife. How was she a second slash third wife? Yeah, she was married at the same ceremony as uh, her cousin Perisatis. So I'm not sure if she was the first one or the. Okay, okay. She's the younger. I wasn't sure what order she was in. Um, if she technically because they got married on the same at the same ceremony, so I'm not sure which one was first. <laughs> okay, I thought you, I was like, how did she be like the th- like second and then divorce and then remarry? Like, no, no, I was okay. I just slip of the mind. I can't remember which one it was. Well, Alexander is in Babylon. He's getting letters uh, from his mom, who is back in Greece. And this is the first time that the movie mentions the term Alexander the Great, which, of course, is something that we're very familiar with now. And it's in a letter from his mother to him. Was she the first one to call him that? Or was this kind of where that term started to come about even during his lifetime? Yeah, that was an after-the-fact sort of thing. I think they're just pushing that in there. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure when that first started. I know that at least by, like, the Romans, he was known by that because, you know, Pompey Magnus called himself that, and he tried to emulate Alexander. I mean, you know, Alexander, actually, he was, like, the hero of Roman generals. He was a role model for them. I mean, Polybius begins his histories by reminding the Romans of Alexander's great achievements and talking about these are the things that you can aspire aspire towards. He's a Greek writing for Romans and obviously Greeks because he wrote in Greek. But yeah, he was like, these these are the history of Rome. But I'm going to start with Alexander's achievements because he's the epitome. Roman generals afterwards, they just wanted to associate himself with that. So you have Pompey, uh, like I said, Epithet Magnus. He even had Alexander's haircut. <laughs> I don't know what it looks like, to be honest. I just know that he emulated a haircut. It's weird. If you see those, like that fleshed out Pompey uh, bust that's uh, in some of the museums. Um, anyway, so, and then Caesar, like, dedicated an equestrian, like, bronze statue of Alexander, and he replaced Alexander's head with his own. So he was like, I am Alexander, that sort of thing. Uh, and then, you know, many Roman emperors later, up to the Severan dynasty, which is when we kind of, like, tail off with it, they would pay homage to his tomb in Alexandria. Like Augustus, Augustus went there when he went, or after he defeated Cleopatra and Mark Antony, you know. 
Caligula, I believe it was, or Nero. Yeah, anyway, you'd have uh, Trajan went there, Hadrian. Like, they all, they would pay homage to him. You know, the Romans just loved Alexander. We love Alexander, too. It's like one of the, if you talk to a layman about Greek history, it's Sparta now and Alexandria, and those are the two main topics. That you can talk, the kids, they think of Greece, or, you know, Greek mythology, like Percy Jackson now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, and I want to bring this back because this is something that the the movie talks about next. And this is the way that we see Darius getting killed in the movie. And it happens there, as I mentioned earlier, in the battle of, at Galgamela, even though the Persian army was defeated, Darius himself managed to escape. But we see that Alexander manages to track him down by the time he does Darius has already been killed by somebody else. We assume it was he was betrayed by one of his own commanders. I think there's some dialogue in there that that implies that that's what happened. Even after after everything that's happened between Alexander and Darius, he still honors Darius's body as the king that he was. So, was Alexander really so focused on hunting down Darius, the movie makes it seem like that was really one of his key things after he escaped that battle, that that was kind of really pushing his army to try to find Darius and try to hunt him down. I think I think the timeline that the movie shows is like three years of guerrilla warfare in the mountains as they're trying to find him. I'm sure there's other things going on <laughs> you know, during that time, but the movie just really seems to imply that he was really focused on getting Darius even though for all intents and purposes, he was the king of Persia now, the empire was his. As long as Darius was out there, he was still a threat. So it, the threat needed to be eliminated. Just the same reason he married both of the women that were available in the royal household to make sure that there's no possible threats. And, and, and his mom killed off all of the rival claimants that had even an inkling of a possibility, even though it was nowhere near as strong as his. It was just, he wanted to hedge his bets, I guess. So as long as Darius was there, he was a Persian. Alexander was a, a foreigner. He was an outsider. He was Greek. He wasn't, you know, he was Macedonian Greek. He wasn't a uh, Persian. So as long as a Persian, a Caymanid Persian was still alive that had possibilities of coming back and taking the throne over he wanted or he was still a, a threat to him so he needed to ensure that he was eliminated and then even after he died he was actually the bestest was one of the satraps who then became a a greek general on the greek side then then became a usurper and he had to, he went after him as well it was a whole thing he called himself artaxerxes and he made a claim to the throne uh, Game of Thrones style. And also he, um, Alexander would claim later that, or I'm sorry, Bessus, I'm sorry, Bessus would claim later that Darius had named him as a successor to the throne or, yeah, while dying. and Yeah, and then, I mean, Alexander gave him like these, a regal funeral, um, put his remains next to the Achaemenid predecessors. We're not going to go into this a whole lot, but like Alexander was very conscious of the people that he conquered or defeated especially with their religion. So he would do the things that they needed to do to gain their trust and approval. So they're big on these religious omens or religious, you know, type of activities or whatnot. He, w he would do those. He would call himself 
he was an Egyptian pharaoh. He acted like a pharaoh around the Egyptians. He acted like a monarch around the Persians. So he made sure to do the necessary things that he needed to do and not come off as a raging lunatic madman conquering. Like, he tried to set himself as a liberator sort of thing. Propaganda, but not as a conqueror. He, he wasn't coming in like a Daenerys with a dragons blazing and trying to destroy everything. But that's just because he didn't have dragons. <laughs> For those that understand that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that makes sense. I mean, with all the different cultures and all of the different societies that he would be taking over, they're all going to have their own politics. They're all going to have their own religions. They're all going to have their own way of doing things. And so I think it's a, it's a, it speaks to Alexander as a person and just, you know, being a smart leader in that he knows he can't be the same leader to everybody because everybody, they need different types of leaders. And so it sounds like he, he almost played the part of an actor of, you know, I'm going to act like the leader that you need. I'm going to be the leader that you need in this country. And over here, I'll be the leader that you need in this country. <laughs> mm -hmm. He was very pragmatic in that sense. Some of the things he did though would anger his countrymen. <laughs> yeah, it was something I'm curious about because this is this is something that the movie talks about very briefly. We we see after Darius is betrayed, Alexander then his next thing is to start hunting down the commanders who betrayed him. You already kind of talked about that a little bit, but there's something a line of dialogue in there where the movie says that he founded his 10th Alexandria and it was a city found, filled with women and veterans who want to brave the frontier life, as the movie says. Now, when I saw that, I, I knew, I'm sure everybody knows about the Alexandria in Egypt, of course, because of the famous, you know, the Library of Alexandria and all that. But, and I also know that Alexander liked to name things after himself, but is the movie right in saying there were at least 10 different cities named Alexandria from his campaigns? Yeah, there actually was upwards of over 20. Most of them didn't last very long. Most of them were east of the Tigris, so like eastern Iraq forward, and a lot of them were locations that reflected trade routes, logistic routes for his army, and defensive positions. So he would build these up, and then they would become kind of like these mini you know, camps, garrisons in a sense. Um, initially pretty inhospitable, nothing more than defensive garrisons, but you know, by the end of the next century, they, so the third century with the Hellenization that happens with under his successors, some of them turn into like thriving cities with elaborate public buildings and large populations of both Greek and local peoples, which, you know, that helps with the cultural exchange back and forth between Greek and the locals. You even get like when he gets into India, you get like the Indo-Greeks, um, kingdoms, you have things like, uh, like Gondar, uh, Afghanistan, there's quite a few uh, in, in the eastern regions that actually become these large major cities later in the Hellenistic period, cultural centers. Um, but initially they were kind of just more than like defensive garrisons on trade routes for logistics and stuff. So it wasn't kind of, it was like he was building, I mean, he called him after his, his like megalomania to call them after himself, but <laughs> it's like an invading army or like not even an invading army, but someone, someone going West in American history and, you know, building these behind them, they were, they would leave these logistical supply routes so they, they wouldn't get like lost in this no man territory. So like, if he gets to India, like, okay, he needs supplies. He needs figure out how to way to get back. He needs like defensive positions. Like you just don't want to just plow full forward ahead with with no uh, forethought behind almost like a breadcrumb trail yeah in a sense yeah 
going back to the movie, we see a plot against Alexander's life next. And it turns out that one of the men implicated in the plot was one of Alexander's boyhood friends, Philotas. After a trial, he's found guilty of treason and executed. And that starts to make things a little bit tricky for Alexander because you talk about his um, supplies there with the cities. And this is starts to come into play in the movie. He's far in the east and his supply lines are being guarded by what the movie says are 20,000 men under the command of Philotus's father, Parmenian. And then because of the execution, that means that now Parmenian, he, he's afraid that Parmenian is going to turn. And so Alexander sends a couple of soldiers to have him killed. And then there's uh, another guy that gets run through by a, a spear. I think Alexander actually does it himself when he mouths off against him. There's these different plots that we start to see. And it's just starting to, I'm assuming what you mentioned earlier, where his his men started to maybe not not be so happy with these campaigns. But we're starting to see some of this dissent with, his, uh, with these plots in the movie, were there these plots against his life and how did he respond to those as they started to pop up? So during his final years in, in the campaign, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but especially after the death of Hephaestion towards the very end, he started showing signs of paranoia and, you know, like, and like to his, some of his Macedonian troops, almost like megalomania. So like it was something that was building up along the way. You can kind of see it coming, you know, someone so young, extraordinary achievements, you know, son of a god, you have this own inevitable sense of your own destiny, delusions of grandeur, conquering the whole known world, boundless ambition in a sense, and, you know, you're getting flat, you know, like flattery by all the people, you're the king. You may combine to produce this effect, and, and he starts behaving himself like a deity or at least sought we already talked about some of this stuff and he also sought to mesh greek and persian culture and homogenize the populations as, as we t- saw he would he would he'd be marrying off persian noble w- women as we we mentioned to some macedonian elites his behaviors he took on very eastern quote-unquote oriental behaviors he actually one of the things that really angered his men and he eventually got rid of it because it angered his men so much was he adopted elements of Persian customs at his court, like dress, but notably the proskinesis, which is this practice where you have to bow before him. And the Macedonians hate it to do that. It was like embar- not even not embarrassing. It was worse than that. It was like emasculating in a sense to them. Yeah, like it was just like they hated that and they complained. And eventually, he, he that was a Persian custom. It was a Near Eastern custom. You bow before the king. You prostrate yourself before them. That sort of thing. They did not like that. And it, it, like he would do things like that. He was taking up Eastern customs like i said but a lot of what he was doing as we've already talked about was he was just he was being pragmatic um trying to you know rule culturally disparate people like many peoples many of them lived in kingdoms where their king was seen as divine like the pharaohs and you know in in a sense so may have just simply been him like trying to strengthen his rule, keep his empire together, but it doesn't mean that his Macedonian officers had to like it. <laughs> Some of them were not a fan. They, they thought he was trying to deify himself. And eventually, like you said, with Philotus and with uh, Clytus, there were some, some conspiracies to get rid of him because I guess they couldn't take it as much. And, and you know, by this point, they've been, they've been on a warfare for all the 30s almost, even with Philip fighting in Greece. They've been fighting for a while. These were veterans. 
most of them were ready to go home. They didn't want to be in the East. They didn't want to be like in the East with a king who was acting Eastern. <laughs> like, you know, like this isn't about their defending their homeland anymore for some of them. Some of them would go with Alexander to the ends of the earth and still were with him when the rest of his army wanted to turn back. We'll get into that as well. <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, he had the with the Philotus and then the Clytus the Black. He got very violent, drunk in altercation in, uh, in Marikanda, which is in, I believe, in some modern-day Uzbekistan as they're traveling far in the east. And then because Clytus accused Alexander of making several stupid mistakes and most especially forgetting Macedonian ways in favor of, I believe he says, corrupt oriental lifestyle in the sources or so, something of that effect. I don't think Oriental lifestyle is corrupting, but that was the Greek view of it. Eastern things bad, Western Greek things good. The irony is, I don't think it, no, it doesn't show it because they don't show the, the Battle of Granicus. Clytus actually saved his life and then, you know, Alexander kills him and runs a sword through him. And, and he, he like cried hysterically afterwards and like he immediately regretted it and he had to be taken off. There's no repercussions because you're the king, so whatever. <laughs> But, like, yeah, he immediately regretted that decision. He, he, like, lost his anger. But, yeah, he saved his life in the very first battle. Alexander could have been killed before he even got out of the area around Troy if it wasn't for the guy that he later killed. <laughs> wow. As you're talking about that, it, it makes me think of something. I'd never even thought about this, but as we were talking about earlier, too, about having to rule over all these different cultures and all these different people and having to be a different type of leader for each one, in theory, that's a good approach to take. You're not going to be the same leader for all of them. It's not going to necessarily work. But it starts to get really, really tricky. Like you mentioned, when some of those believe their leader, their king or pharaoh or whoever it may be, to essentially be a deity and to be very godlike. Well, then you can't be godlike over here and not godlike over here. <laughs> Because if these people start to realize that, oh, wait a minute, when he's with the Greeks, he's just a normal person. And when he's with us, he's he's a god, right? I mean, that it doesn't really jive and it doesn't start to go. And so I could see how he could really, really struggle with that, especially when, like again, like you said, he's the king and do whatever he wants. So he's got to figure it out on his own, essentially, of how to deal with that, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. And especially the people he had to like convince the most were the Macedonians who were more traditional in a sense. They were very much against that. Well, let's head back to the movie now, because you mentioned him earlier, Hephaestion, and he's played by Jared Leto. Who wears lots of makeup. <laughs> wears lots of makeup, yes. We also see Rosario Dawson's character, Roxanne, and we you mentioned her earlier. The movie implies that marrying her was a rather mysterious decision because she was a barbarian woman, had no political significance. You kind of alluded to that earlier as well. But then the movie very heavily implied, well, I guess it just outright comes and says it, and it's just implying it, but that uh, Hephaestion starts to get very jealous of Roxanne and, since Alexander married her. So we start to get this almost a love triangle, I would say, except maybe not, maybe it's more like a, a love cube because you start to get then another character, the uh, Persian that Alexander sleeps with, Bagos, I believe is his name. And we don't really see any professions of love between Alexander and Bagos, but they obviously sleep together and then it starts to get this jealousy going on and there starts 
to be these other things. You mentioned the other two wives. I think the movie actually mentions them as well. So we start to get this really complex story of all these different things of Alexander's love life. How well do you think the movie did showing his love life? So for a few things, Alexander's sexuality is the subject of a lot of speculation and controversy. It wraps up into this this Greek concept of pederasty, where you have older male lover uh, and a younger male beloved, erotes, eromenes. It's more of like a tutorage type, tutelage type of relationship. Sources don't really talk about it a whole lot, but there's definitely a, in a lot of places a sexual component. But it's a social custom. When you reach an adulthood and become a citizen, then you uh, are no longer supposed to have that type of relationship. You eventually take your own. So, and it's not really, and you think about like what we consider heterosexual and homosexual relationships in the modern world. It's not really how the ancients viewed things. There was no binary. It was more about like the power of the relationship. So it was more of like, I like to put it as like, who's the penetrator and who's being penetrated. So like, if you're if you're an adult citizen, you're the penetrator. You have the power. Um, if you're like a young, if you're younger, you're not a citizen yet because you're, you're not an adult. If you're a slave, if you're a woman, you're the penetrated. That sort of thing. So like, if you have a younger, you could have a woman slave of you know, male slave relationships. You can have a younger relationship with a, a male, but like it was very taboo to have that as adults, like two consenting adult males. We don't have a whole lot of sources on female-female relationships, but talking about pederasty from the male perspective, that was went against social norms of most Greek cities. Uh, sexual contact was supposed to be discontinued into adulthood. In some places like Athens, if you were known to have a sexual relationship as a citizen with another citizen, as a male, you could lose your citizenship rights. It was kind of that sort of big deal. There are some theories that the Macedonian court may have been a little bit more tolerant of what we would consider homosexuality between adults and other places. I mean, we don't really have like great evidence for that. It's just a theory. Um, some modern historians like Robin Lane Fox, who was the, the writer of the, uh, of the book on Alexander, he was part of the historical team. He believes almost explicitly that Alexander's youthful relationship with Festion was sexual and continued into adulthood. So we say that this is Greek sexuality 101, very short crash course. If you want to learn more, I have an episode on it. But, you know, we have it's much speculation, as I mentioned, but none of his contemporaries explicitly describe the relationship with Hephaestion as sexual, um, though the pair were often compared to Achilles and Patrocles, who probably had a sexual relationship, too. So, I mean, that doesn't actually they're just because they don't mention it doesn't mean it's it wasn't. But. It's just interesting that it was never mentioned like that. They were just mentioned very close. It becomes later when you get to like the Greek writers in the Roman period who paint a very different picture. Like Plutarch says that he was quite excessively keen on boys and uh, and Athenaeus as well. And he sexually embraced his eunuch, Bagoas, in public. That was the Persian eunuch. He loved the boys. We don't really get that in the earlier sources. Um, So it's just interesting. I think they were more than friends. But I don't know if it's quite as intense as Robin Lane Fox may have you believe in the movie. <laughs> they were definitely more than friends because you see he like falls into depression after <laughs> he dies. And we'll get into that too. But yeah, I mean, Roxanne was Roxanna or Roxanne for short, depending where you put the A and the E. But uh, yeah, she, she was a um, he married her and I believe it was like 327. So like three years before he married Statera and Perisatis. 
he married her right after Darius was killed and buried and all that sort of stuff, and Bessus was taken care of. She wasn't like a nobody. She was a daughter of a Bactrian nobleman. She wasn't like a nobody nobody, but she wasn't like, you know, the Persian princess. <laughs> like, yeah, not not as politically motivated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and according to the sources, Alexander fell in love with her on sight and married her despite strong opposition from his Macedonian officers because they were like, why are you marrying her? Like, you need to marry a Macedonian woman. He married her, then sent her back to Susa, and then, then he made his expedition into India. And he would make her father the governor of the Hindu Kush, Hindu Kish region. It's great to be nice to the king, or to be related to the king. It's great to be king. <laughs> it's good to be king, yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like, even though there's a lot of aspects that we may not know fully, it sounds like they did a decent job of at least grasping or or explaining some of the complexity of it, if nothing else. Because I remember there are, there was some dialogue with uh, his men asking, you know, why are you marrying Roxanne? Like, why are you marrying her? You should marry a Macedonian woman. I believe they actually said that exact same thing. So yeah, it sounds like all in all, I mean, it's a movie, so it's not going to be, it's not a documentary. It's not entirely accurate. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's Robin Lane Fox was the historical person behind it. So if you had another Alexander scholar, might have had a different interpretation. You might have gotten a different like view on his sexuality because it's just so different between the scholars, like so many different opinions on it. For our purposes, though, we'll head back into the movie because it. while Alexander is in Asia, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but uh, this is when... Some of Alexander's soldiers just they want to go home, and one of the soldiers in particular, Craterus, uh, mentions that they left Greece with over forty thousand men, and they fought in over fifty battles during the campaign across Asia. Alexander is pretty stubborn. He says, "Fine, I'm going to take my Asian soldiers and keep going," and then. I believe it's Ptolemy's voice over there uh, calls it this uprising and actual mutiny, which I'm not sure if that would be the correct term for it or if I should have looked up if that's only something that happens on the ocean or not. But the point here is something that you alluded to earlier a little bit in that there was a point during the campaign when Alexander's men seemed to get fed up and want to go home. Did that actually happen like we see in the movie? Yeah. So east of so Porus, the famous Indian king that we won't go into that, but near the Ganges River, further east of that, and you get into the Indian subcontinent. And then his army was just exhausted and feared prospect of fighting even larger armies. And they've been campaigning for, at this point, seven years or whatever. So when they reached the Hyphasis River, which is, they just refused to uh, march any further. And they mutinied in the sense that they <laughs> disobeyed a direct order by their commander. And he had to give in. Um, and this river would mark the easternmost extent of his conquest. He did not go any further. They turned around and went back. Oh, wow. So the mutiny actually worked. They just ended up leaving. Well, if you don't have an army that's going to fight with you, he's not going to go fight <laughs> himself. Well, that's true. The movie implies that, at least the implication I got was that it was mostly the Greeks who wanted to go home, the Greek soldiers of his, but then that uh, he had a bunch of other soldiers with him that he had kind of gathered up in his campaign and that he was just going to continue on with those soldiers and the Greek soldiers can go home and fine, I'm going to continue my my campaign with somebody else essentially was what I got gathered from the movie, but it sounds like that wasn't necessarily the case. That happened at Opus a little, little bit later on the way back. There was another problem where he was like, 
he summoned people together and he was going to discharge all the men who he thought were unfit for service and proposed to send them all home with money. He tried to shame his men because they already felt like their service was undervalued because he kept saying he would dismiss them and use Eastern people and they resented that. And so he would discharge every one of them. And so he had his guards arrest some men of the ringleaders of a mutiny. They also did that as well. It was another mutiny because they got angry with him and and it became a, a big hula, and eventually things settled down. And Alexander, he ended up sending Kuteris back to Macedon with some troops, and he was supposed to come back with fresher troops because he, I mean, just because he wasn't going to go further east into Asia doesn't mean that he was done with conquests or what he needed to do. He would, by the time he would get back to Ma- Babylon, he was already making plans for other expeditions and to other areas and we'll talk about that too so like he wanted fresher troops to come back to mess and meet him in mesopotamia so they mutinied in the sense that there was another mutiny at opus not because they didn't want to go east because they weren't going east anymore they were on the way back but just they were just tired and it ended up being a big thing but yeah he had other conquests in mind um according to the sources some was like he had carthage on his mind some was like he was gonna head north some and it's highly unlikely, uh, said that he heard about this upstart kingdom in Rome, in Italy, central Italy, that he was going to go take on. <laughs> highly unlikely. I guess you can put out any hypothesis you want. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned that that was as far east as they went, but then earlier you, uh, we were talking about how that was essentially the end of the known world. They had gone you know, way beyond what they knew at that time. And one thing that you mentioned as you were talking about the soldiers and wanting to turn back. I don't remember how you phrased it, but essentially that they were kind of afraid of coming up against a huge army. Do you think some of that might've had to do with their wanting to turn back? Just they're going up against the unknown where when you're facing Persia and you're facing, you know, other barbarian hordes or, you know, whoever you're fighting against, you kind of have an idea of what you're going up against, but that's the fog of war. You don't know what's, what's there and that can add some extra fear to it. Yeah, it definitely. They had no intelligence of their surroundings. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know what lied ahead. They didn't know what they fought with. In their minds, they, they could have been monstrous creatures that lived out there. It was just let your imagination run when you don't know. It's like it's a dark end of the world type of thing. And they they just been fighting. They have already accomplished what their mission was set out to. They defeated the Persian Empire. And by this point, it was just kind of it was kind of, I'm, I'm no doubt, I'm, I guess I'm just speculating, but I no doubt mo- many of them were, oh, this is just Alexander's ego going now. Like, like he's making stupid decisions and getting people killed sort of thing. Well, but after so many years, I can understand being exhausted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure there were some who were still looking for adventure, but for the vast majority, yeah. Especially some of the older generals who have been fighting since Philip's time with him, um, like Ptolemy and them. They were, they, Alexander's in his late twenties. He's a young whippersnapper. Uh, some of these older guys, I mean, they're ready for a break, which, which is funny. Uh, not funny. It's not, not funny, but interesting. Cause like they immediately go back into warfare after he dies anyway. So it's not like it was a break of war from wanting to fight. Cause that's what they knew. It was a wanting to fight familiarity, I suppose as opposed to the unfamiliarity of the East, because they would fight with each other. 
So it wasn't like, oh, we, we want peace. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at least you know who your enemy is when you're fighting each other as opposed. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it was fear of the unknown. Or you don't know what you don't know sort of thing. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And you mentioned the potential of monsters and, and creatures like that. And that actually leads right into my next question, because in the movie, we see Alexander nearly getting killed during attack in the jungles of Asia. We movie never really tells us actually where this is, but we see Alexander and his men are, are, are charging forward. It's the first time they're, they're in jungle environment most of the battles we've seen in the movie so far been these big open expanses this time they're in a jungle and there's this noise that starts coming and the ground starts shaking and all these elephants start charging these war elephants and just essentially start mowing down the men i mean these mass massive creatures alexander himself his horse gets hit with an arrow and then alexander's thrown and he gets hit with a spear it's I mean, it's one of the bloodiest, I think even some of the voiceover implies that it's one of the bloodiest battles that he has. And we also see, uh, I believe, uh, Hephaestion actually gets injured as well. Alexander in the movie gets carried off on a shield from the battlefield. He doesn't die there, but he's severely injured. And this is actually when is the final straw in that mutiny that we talked about starts to happen. And we reached the end. The movie kind of implies that we've reached the end because we were defeated here and so we're not going to go any further. Is that something that actually happened? Yes and no. So like that actually happens. His horse dies. I know in the sources he gets hit in the shoulder, but I mean, then there's also, he has like an ankle injury in another campaign after that. So like there's, this isn't like the grand all be all. He had a lot of injuries. It's just, I think this one, this specific one was kind of played up and I'm not sure if that was meant for a specific place in India that he got an injury from, or if it was just kind of meant to be like India in general, like the the campaigns in India through the jungle were rough because he, I mean, he fought a bunch of different tribes in different valleys, the Grayas Valley and Kunar and Swat and Bunair, different peoples. I can't remember off the top of my head which one that one was trying to portray. I mean, he, he saw he saw elephants when he fought against Porus. So elephants weren't new at that point. I think that was just like a collection of like the fears, the hardness, the kind of guerrilla warfare in the jungle, like just built up into one battle scene. Because th- that was how it was for like the entire like winter and just campaigning for a whole year of fighting their way back uh, through that part of India. That makes perfect sense. And movies do that all the time to, you know, do an amalgamation or, you know, some sort of a compositor. You take all these different things together and you throw them into, you compress the timeline, right? I mean, I mean, it's a long movie, but it's not years and years long like the actual events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So they, as they leave India, then they start heading back west. And then you have that mutiny at Opus that I mentioned before, the other one. And then they eventually make their way back to Babylon and that's where things happen unexpectedly (laughs) yeah well speaking of which that leads right into the next one because in the movie once they return to babylon tragedy strikes hephaestion comes down with typhus of india that's what they call it he dies and alexander starts to suspect that roxanne was actually behind his death she thinks that maybe she poisoned him because of the love between alexander and hephaestion that roxanne was jealous for how well did the movie do depicting his death, Hephaestion's death, as well as the implications that there was some suspicions around him 
possibly being poisoned by Roxanne? One thing they got wrong is he actually didn't die in Babylon. It was in Ecbatana. He died before they got back to Babylon. It was Alexander who would later die in Babylon. Spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Festion died. Uh, it was, he fell very ill and died when they were in Ecbatana. If Alexander wasn't showing signs of mental instability before that, as some of the sources in the movie likes to kind of show, alcoholism, mental instability definitely was pushed over the edge with this. The source, Arian, uh, said that he cried over the corpse for like a full day until he was finally dragged away. I don't know if that's exaggerated or not. Maybe. Um, if you've cried over somebody's corpse for a full day, though, that definitely means uh, you're more than just a friend, I would think. Plutarch says, and this is where we get like the maybe potential suspicions of poison or whatever. He says that Alexander had Hephaestion's doctor who was taking care of his illness, Glaucus, killed for giving him the wrong medicine or letting him drink too much. And he was, could have been foul play. There could have not. None of these sources always agree on anything. So there's different interpretations, ancient and modern. So then, and then he was in like, he was in such a deep grief that he sent messengers to the Oracle at Amun back in Egypt. And he asked <laughs> if he could make sacrifices to Festion and deify him as a god too. And he got the answer, no, which really angered him. But he, and he treated him as a demigod anyway. And even ordered this massive funeral pyre in order to honor him, which kind of harkens back, not kind of, it actually does harken back to the, uh, the end of the Iliad with Achilles and Patrocles mourning his death. Those two relationships are, are often linked in the minds of many, just similar style relationships. You mentioned earlier almost a mentorship type relationship. Was that how it started or? They, they were the same age, roughly. The same age? Okay. One might have been slightly older than the other. I think Hephaestion might have been slightly older than Alexander, but it wasn't like a 30-year-old man and a 12-year-old boy when like, it, they were like, you know, it might have been like 16 and 12 or something. But like, yeah, they grew up together. I think they showed that at the beginning of the film too, wrestling together and stuff. They're in Aristotle's classes together. Well, in the movie after Hephaestion dies, then it goes back to what I talked about at the very beginning of the movie and at the very beginning of our discussion, Alexander's death. And according to the movie, this happens pretty pretty quickly after Hephaestion's death. It's not very far afterwards. I don't think the movie ever really explains what caused his death. We see that he's drinking a bunch of wine. The next thing, he doubles over, and then he's on his deathbed. And uh, Ptolemy's voiceover says that he died on June 10th, one month short of his 33rd birthday. And then it goes on to talk about how the generals start fighting over his body and his empire right away, eventually splitting the empire into four parts with Ptolemy himself becoming the pharaoh of Egypt. So how well did the movie do showing how Alexander the Great died and what happened to his empire after his death? Very shortly after he left Ecbatana, he kind of became himself again. He slowly became himself again, I should say, and began his march back to Babylon. When he got back to Babylon, he kind of kept busy, like I said, with projects and began to think about what he's going to do next. He was working on a fleet to explore the Caspian Sea, north of Iran, Persia, which was very unfamiliar to the Greek world. He was also wanting to explore south, build some harbors, expand into Arabia, turn the Persian Gulf into a region, a prosperous region, that sort of thing. He was going to fight the Arabs, claiming or attack the Arabs and you know, conquer that, that area. 
just for expansions, for expansion's sake sort of thing. So he had these other things going on. Canals, you know, improve the lives of his subjects, you know, things conquerors do. And then in the sources, he had a, was a bunch of like historical hindsight probably seeping in, like anecdotal things, but a lot of different omens started popping up, foretelling a bad end. You get a ton of them. We won't go into them, but so the various sources can't really agree on what was the cause of his death. And we, you know, modern historians can't really agree on that either. It's still kind of unknown. Everybody has a different opinion. Some say it was alcoholism. Some say typhus or malaria or poisoned or we can just best his guess at it. He sustained countless wounds in his campaigns and marched unknown lands, diseases for almost a decade. It was probably a combination of disease, sickness, wounds, not getting treated possibly heavy alcoholism uh all of the above i don't really think anybody poisoned him per se so yeah he he died um there's various theories like i said some people look at like oh this is the disease that it was you know the black death people try to pin precisely on different things based upon evidence in the sources anyway um we won't get into that but he's dead but he didn't have an heir which is the big problem so he had no legitimate Macedonian heir. Uh, his only son, which would be called Alexander IV, he was the third. He would only become Alexander the Great later. Alexander IV was born by Roxanne, but wasn't born until after he had already died. So, I mean, they, they didn't even know it was going to be a son. A Diodor says that his companion, and this is where we get the, like, the famous, to the strongest, uh, his uh, companions asked him as he was laying on his deathbed, who he was bequeathing his empire to, and he said, Toi Krastis Toi, which means to the strongest in Greek, likely apocryphal. Other theories of this is, by modern scholars, is that, like, actually the success, they actually either willfully or erroneously uh, misheard Toi Krastis Toi when it was actually Toi Krateroi, which is to Craterus, the date of to Craterus, the, the general who led his troops, his veterans back home, and who he became entrusted him with control of Macedon and his steed, one of his veteran generals uh, at his side. Other sources like Curtius, a Roman author, and Justin, a Byzantine author later, a late Roman, said that he chose Perdiccas by giving him a signet ring uh, and nominated him, but Perdiccas didn't want to claim power and instead suggested it that Roxanne's baby would be king, if male, and that he would just become the regent uh, with, and then himself and Craterus and Antipater would be guardians until the baby could take the throne. But, you know, Perdiccas was the leader of his campaign cavalry. And according to sources, the infantry was really angry that they didn't, they were excluded from this discussion. So they supported Alexander's half brother, Philip. Our, I, I always butcher this last name. I cannot say this correctly. It's Philip uh, Arhideus. Arhideus. Or Arhideus. Every time I, I always stumble on that word, and I, like a decade. Anyway, so it is what it is now. But eventually, like both sides reconcile, and you know, they are both appointed as joint kings. So you get Philip A and the young Alexander joint kings, but in name only, because then you have these older generals who are their guardians. And then eventually, you get this dissension among the ranks. Obviously, fighting and fighting. And then rivalry soon just brings it all down within two years. <laughs> and then you get the satrapies are handed out at what's called the partition of Babylon after his death. So it's like 
these generals, this is your area, this is going to be your area, this is going to be your area. And then within two years, they start, the generals start fighting for power. Perdiccas is ex- assassinated. Both Al- young Alexander and Philip are murdered. And then it kicks off a 40 years war between uh, the successors known in Greek, the Diadochi, Diadochi, though, and that's what we know for the next 40 years, there's a war. And then eventually that the Greek world setters sent, uh, settles into four power blocks. You get Ptolemy, Egypt, where 40 years later at the beginning of the film, he's in control of Alexandria. He has a line of successors all the way down to Cleopatra. And then you get the Seleucids who control Mesopotamia and Central Asia. For a time, they have a little bit further. They basically lose everything in India almost immediately. And then over time, the, their empire starts shrinking and shrinking and shrinking as, from the east as you start getting like resurgent eastern kingdoms popping up. And then you get Adelid and An- Anatolia, which is modern Turkey area. You get the uh, Adalus, the Adalid dynasty, and then you get the Antigonids in Macedon who control like the southern Balkans, uh, southern peninsulas. Or Peloponnese, some of the Peloponnese, but you know, Central Greece, Macedon. So that's how it gets splintered up. It's fascinating. That time period is just, it's like, it's very, I, I know I make this reference a lot, but it's very Game of Thrones esque. I think it would make a fascinating television show, like miniseries, like the Diadohoi, because it's very, you know, like people are just killing each other, fighting battles every couple years. <laughs> it's just, you have people at the beginning and you basically have nobody left towards the end. You just get some of their successors, obviously, but um, it's just a constant change of hands. So after Alexander died, a little bit after he died, so he was, his body was placed into a gold sarcophagus, and it was escorted back to Macedon. Recently, I forget when, but it was like within like the last 10 years, I think, there was a discovery of this enormous empty tomb at Amphipolis, which is an awesome archaeological site. It has led some to speculate that this was his intended burial place. There's a lot of royal findings in there. Obviously, no body or anything, no, because we know that according to uh, Aelianus, Claudius Aelianus, a Roman source later, that uh, he mentions that a seer foretold that the land where Alexander's body would be laid to rest would be happy, rich, and unvanquishable forever. So, like they fought. Of course, we want to get the body. We want the body here in our territory. Perhaps more than likely, some of the successors just had control. The legitimacy that would come from having Alexander's body buried in your area, in your. Uh, kingdom so what happens is ptolemy seizes it and takes it back to egypt <laughs> and then his son ptolemy ii Philadelphus, is the one who actually buries him in alexandria and his remains would stay there until i think it's the severan dynasty like the 200s but like it's like in the roman empire and then we kind of we don't really know what happened it gets like cloudy we have mentions of emperors going to his tomb and seeing him and then you don't anymore so you don't really know what happened to it yeah, it just kind of disappears from like, I think it pops back up later. I'm not really 100% sure on like the later life of that. I just know that he was in Alexandria for some time. How long after Hephaestion died did Alexander die? Because I don't remember the movie actually showing how much time passed between there, but it seemed to imply it was pretty quickly afterwards. It's relatively quick. I mean, like after he leaves Ecbatana, then he heads back to Babylon and he's only in Babylon for a little while. It can't be any more than like, it's definitely not over a year. Uh, I would say it's somewhere between six months to a year. It's not that much longer. Yeah, it's pretty quick. Yeah, that was one of the things that caught my attention. When I was watching the movie because you know they have this huge play on the love between them, and then when he passes, all of it, and then it just downhill from there. You know, Alexander has this huge campaign, and then within almost no time at all, he's down. Mm-hmm. 
If there was one thing that you would change in the movie, what would that be? I would add more of the build up to actual campaigning in Persia. More of the politics instead of the military side? Yeah, more of the interpersonal relationships between the different commanders. Alexander, you can build up some of them more. Like, you didn't really get a whole lot of Ptolemy, a whole lot of Antigonus. You didn't get a whole lot of the successors other than like, you know, brief mentioning here or there. Some of the personalities who would play an important role afterwards, I would I would have liked to see them built up more. But I mean, again, it was already like a three-hour movie. <laughs> it would be better as a miniseries. Yeah, hopefully they'll do something like that in the in the future. But in the meantime, for somebody who wants to learn more about ancient Greece, can you share a little bit of information about your podcast and where someone listening can find it? Yeah, so it's the History of Ancient Greece. Obviously, you can go to the History of Ancient Greece dot com and directly download them. And I have lots of cool resources there. But I mean, I'm a podcast that's on every single podcasting platform. If I'm not on one that you listen to, just shoot me an email and let me know. I'm also on YouTube now, Spotify, you know, Apple. I am currently in the Peloponnesian War still. So I'm about 80 years before Philip's assassination and Alexander's ascension ish, roughly. So I still have a little bit of while to get there. But yeah, so I'm at the History of Ancient Greece. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of the Peloponnesian War. I have about 115-ish episodes. It's not just military history and political history. I have a lot of, I have quite a bit of cultural, so religious episodes. There's an episode for every cult for each god There's and their myths. There's also, like I said, uh, sexuality episodes. So I do a lot of cultural topics, economic topics, social topics. I've been in the fifth century for like two years now. When I got to the end of the Persian Wars, I took a break and just did like this grand cultural tour of the Mediterranean. But yeah, yeah. Also, I'll give a shout. I'll give a shout out to there's a there's the Hellenistic Age podcast as well that's covering the Alexander and the period after. So if you guys are interested in Alexander and the period after Alexander, check that one out. He does a very good job. Derek does a, a fantastic job as well. And then I'm doing this stuff earlier, so you can learn about how we get to how Greece gets destroyed and conquered by Macedon by fighting with each other, and then what happens afterwards because they're always fighting <laughs> the greeks are always fighting <laughs> never united <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on to chat about the historical accuracy of alexander appreciate your time uh i loved it it was, it was fantastic thank you this episode of based on a true story was produced by me dan lefebvre I'd like to thank Ryan Stitt for his time and expertise in helping us separate fact from fiction in the movie Alexander. If you want to dive deeper into the history of ancient Greece, go check out Ryan's podcast called The History of Ancient Greece. And you can find his show over at thehistoryofancientgreece.com. Of course, if you're driving or unable to head there right now, then I'll make sure to add a link to Ryan's podcast in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Hephaestion died of an illness in Babylon. Number two, some of Alexander's soldiers mutinied against him. Number three, Alexander did not kill Darius at the Battle of Galgamela. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's change up the order a little bit and start with number two. Some of Alexander's soldiers mutinied against him. That is true. 
While I was chatting with Ryan, I wasn't really sure if the term mutiny was something unique to something that happened on the high seas, like the mutiny on the bounty. But looking it up afterwards, it looks like it's not. It's Well, it is most commonly used for when a crew mutinies against their captain on a ship. The word itself just refers to refusing to obey authority or rebel against military authority. So, yes, some of Alexander's soldiers mutinied against him by disobeying a direct order from their commander and refusing to go any further east. Next is number one. Hephaestion died of an illness in Babylon. That is the lie. As Ryan explained, Hephaestion did not die in Babylon like the movie shows. Instead, he died in Ecbatana on their way back. While he certainly didn't know it at the time, Hephaestion's death would be less than a year before Alexander himself would die. That means number three is also true. Alexander did not kill Darius at the Battle of Galgamilla. Ryan explained that Darius survived the Battle of Galgamilla, only to be killed later as Alexander's claim to the Persian throne was in jeopardy for as long as Darius was still alive. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do. That's exactly why I'm sharing this information. If there's one thing that's surprising to people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating a podcast like this one, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 29 hours to create and cost $31.53 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. So it does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, based on a true story, podcast.com has its own monthly website hosting costs, domain costs, all of that. This The cost of $31.53 does not account for any of that. It also doesn't account for any of the time outside of writing, researching, and producing this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the website based on a true story podcast.com, any updates to WordPress or the plugins or any of that that's required to do on a website, it's always going to be maintenance on a website. That uh, time is not included in that 29 hours. The 29 hours was just the process of writing the uh, the questions and doing research around that to come up with those to my for my chat with Ryan as well as the producing of the episode actually editing all of the audio putting all of that together to produce the final mp3 file that you are listening to right now now if you enjoyed today's episode i hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. Right now, there are over 45 minisodes there covering different fictional movies and the way that they use real history or events to try to make them seem a little more realistic. For example, in the last minisode, we learned about some of the real-life aircraft disasters and island survival stories sort of like what we saw in the movie Castaway. 
there are hours and hours of bonus content available immediately and plenty more planned and in the works just as a way of saying thank you for helping me keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story. Once again, you can find out how to support the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop on to the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter, where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.